It's Monday, February 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Ukraine has agreed to talk with Russia, hoping to end the invasion, but say they want peace talks and are not ready to surrender. There is little hope for a resolution, as Putin has ratcheted up the tensions by ordering his nuclear deterrent forces to be on high alert. And with Ukrainians banding together, Russian forces are having a more difficult time taking over the country. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, as COVID infections are dropping, Americans are going back to bars, movies, and sporting events. But one place they aren't going back to is the office. Many have found a work-life balance that they don't want to let go of. It's not even about COVID, as 61% of remote workers are doing so by choice. Callum Borchers, on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why workers just don't want to go back. Finally, the days of the International Space Station are numbered, as NASA plans to retire it by 2031. It will be quite a spectacle, as the plans are to gradually lower it closer to Earth with a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. With this massive hole in low Earth orbit, it will also set off a race for private companies to be the next big space research hub. Amanda Shupak, contributor to The Daily Beast, tells us what's next for the ISS. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We've got to do everything we can to change the, the heavy odds that Ukraine faces and, uh, and to help them. And so that's why uh, we're sending uh, humanitarian supplies, we're sending uh, financial supplies and military supplies as well. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the latest as the fighting continues in Ukraine. President Zelensky there said he spoke with the Belarus president, Alexander Lukashenko, and said that he would be meeting with the Russians without preconditions. They're going to be meeting on the Ukraine border there. This is just an effort to really see if they can do anything. Zelensky said he doesn't think anything will come of the meeting. Um, They said that they're ready for peace talks, but they're not ready to surrender. And this is all coming as President Putin ordered his Russian nuclear deterrent forces to be on high alert, which really started spooking a lot of people. Yeah, it did spook a lot of people, including the U.S. I think that we're watching this unfold in a way that the Russians nor the Ukrainians really expected. The Russians thought that they were going to march into Ukraine, march into the capital of Kiev and have the whole place sewn up in a couple of days. And by the weekend, they would be uh, sending troops back home and it would be over. But that is not how this has gone. And I think we've seen that evidence in the way that Putin announced that, as you mentioned, he was going to activate this nuclear deterrence. He's also started increasingly sort of pointing to the U.S. and European allies as being behind some of the defense that arguing that the Ukrainians might not have been able to do this themselves. Uh, he put out a statement this weekend that suggested U.S. drones were over the Black Sea and providing uh, intel to the Ukrainian Navy. So he definitely sees this as not just a fight against Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine, but a fight with um, those who would be allied with Ukraine. And so I think we're watching that unfold. We've really seen the Ukrainian people come together on this one. Uh, and the government even said, hey, if you want to fight, we're going to help you. We'll supply you with guns. We're seeing, you know, uh, residents there help make Molotov cocktails for when Russian forces come into their neighborhood neighborhoods and things. It, I mean, it, you, we've really seen them band together and fight. And even here in the States, you know, people uh, just throwing, you know, Ukrainian people throwing as much support as they can to their home country. That's right. You know, we've really seen the Ukrainian people sort of stick together. We saw President Zelensky 
you know, the U.S. urged him to leave the country last week, saying that they thought he was a Russian target, that he was in danger, that he should go to Poland. He refused to do so. And he stayed there and really fought and fought alongside um, his countrymen. And that's military and non-military. As you mentioned, handing out guns, handing out grenades, telling people how to make Molotov cocktails to throw out the windows of their apartments um, should they see Russian troops. I mean, this is really a bigger fight than Russia thought they were going to get from the Ukrainian people who are just not willing to surrender. As the president said, he's not willing to surrender to Russia. He'll talk to them, but he's not going to give up. What a trajectory for Zelensky, right? Being a comedian, being embroiled in whatever was happening with President Trump at the time. And now, I mean, really standing strong in, in face of all this Russian opposition. That's right. Zelensky was a comedian. That was his background. He was kind of the John Stewart of Ukraine. And this was a guy who was, you know, a political satirist. He wasn't considered um, a long-standing politician, but has shown his country. I think no matter how this plays out in the coming days and weeks, um, will be viewed by the Ukrainians as a hero for generations to come. One of the other things we're seeing that uh, European allies were uh, pretty hesitant to do at first was to take Russia out of the SWIFT banking system. This is an international banking system. They move money back and forth. Uh, More allies are coming on board. The U.S. says they're on board. And this would really harm them from operating globally. This is a system that's basically member run. So every country that's involved has to agree in order to impose a sanction that would cut someone out. And it's considered a really drastic action. You know, the only places we've cut from SWIFT are Iran. So that's not something we do very often. Um, but we saw that over the weekend, more European allies that were originally unwilling to do so now coming on board saying they think some limits, not all limits, but some limits. So some of the banks in Russia would be limited um, from using SWIFT. And that would really make it difficult as you said, for them to move money around, for them to access money. We operate in a global financial system. So um, cutting a nation or some banks in a nation off from SWIFT would be immediately noticed by the people of that country. You know, this is kind of an old school power grab, uh, land grab type of move from Russia trying to invade Ukraine here. And it's making a lot of other Eastern European countries pretty nervous, most notably, you know, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia. You know, where does Putin stop if he succeeds here? That That's the other big worry. I think a lot of people thought that the days of a European land war were over, um, that war was sort of a... a- gritty, terrorist-driven, small-cell-driven folks like ISIS. This is a government. This is the government of a very large country launching this invasion. And this looks like the wars that we thought were past. So I think it's making a lot of people nervous. It's making people nervous in Europe that um, if Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, that he'll feel empowered and he'll continue to head west. And I think it's making people all over the globe feel nervous. Uh, We thought the imperialism conquering was done. And this looks like someone's trying again. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You try to be accommodating. You know, you try to to work with your people, not be overbearing. And you know, I think the hope that a lot of CEOs have is that their company culture will be so magnetic that people will just kind of come back voluntarily without a mandate. And what they're waking up to right now is... That's not happening. Joining us now is Callum Borchers, on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Callum. So glad to be with you. I want to talk about this interesting thing that's ongoing, obviously, throughout the pandemic and returning back to work. 
people just simply do not want to go back to the office. Obviously, this is a story for those that are lucky enough to be able to do remote work, as many are not, but they find themselves really not wanting to go back. It doesn't really seem to be that it's all about COVID. We're seeing cases drop. They just found working at home so much better for them, their personal lives. And uh, you've talked to a couple of business people and them trying to make really great accommodations at the office and people still just not want to go back. So Callum, tell us a little more about it. Yeah, well, that's such a great point that you made at the very end there. I'll give you an example. I, I talked to the, the president of a sports marketing firm in Chicago called Revolution. And I mean, this is like a dream office. If you had to show up, this is where I'd want to be. I mean, <laughs> you step off the elevator, picture this, and then you walk through a tunnel into the lobby as if you were an athlete, you know, coming out of the locker room into an arena. And they, they got bleachers and a scoreboard. They got a full-size Formula One race car. I mean, this is a cool office. And then to boot, at the end of the day, They've got an office bar stocked with free beer and bourbon. I mean, how do you top this? Right. And yet, even they can only get people to come in two, maybe three days a week. You know, much of the staff still prefers to be home most of the time. And and the boss over there says, hey, you know, honestly, it's kind of frustrating. You do everything you can do. You try to be accommodating. You know, you try to to work with your people, not be overbearing. And you know, I think the hope that a lot of CEOs have is that their company culture will be so magnetic that people would just kind of come back voluntarily without a mandate. And what they're waking up to right now is that's not happening. The president of Revolution that you spoke to said people still aren't comfortable coming back. And the question I had, right, we're seeing case rates drop from COVID. And are they just not comfortable coming back or are they too comfortable at home? That's an important distinction. You know, he says people are saying, oh, I'm not quite comfortable coming back. But I think a lot of CEOs you know, sort of smell something fishy in that because they they can look out into the world. And, and as some told me, you know, look, I, I, I see sports arenas that are full. I see restaurants. I see uh, people flying on airplanes. I scroll Instagram and I see my employees taking vacations. So they're comfortable getting out and about. That's not to dismiss COVID fears. Many people still do have them. A lot of folks, including my Myself. You know, I have very young children who can't be vaccinated and they remain very cautious. But you're right. You know, the latest research from the Pew Research Center clearly shows that six in 10 workers at this point who, who are working from home are doing so by choice. And, and then within that group, three quarters say they're at home just because they simply prefer to be at home. So, right. so that's really what's going on here for a lot of folks. Big banks, Goldman Sachs, tech giants, Microsoft, Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, they were planning for March returns to the office and just, uh, you know, had this uh, stat in here nationwide, you know, office occupancy rates are hovering about one third. So even the big guys are having a trouble, get, uh, having trouble getting people back. You know, I talked with a, a software engineer, for example, worked in New York City, made a great living, but didn't want to get back on the subway, you know, two hours round trip every day. So he was willing to take a pay cut, quit that job, take a remote gig, he up and moved his family to Puerto Rico, where the cost of living is lower and the weather is much, much, much better. And, you know, so in other words, he was willing to make less for the remote flexibility. I spoke with another worker in upstate New York, who's in her early 60s, didn't really plan to retire. But once she was sent home in March of 2020, threw herself into new activities. She got, she got a puppy, she took up cross-country skiing and gardening, really developed a new lifestyle 
that she loved. And then when the company was going to call her back to the office last summer, she said, forget it. I'd rather retire early than, than go back. So I think that what, what's happening here, I think a lot of employers think, well, I'm going to call my workers bluff, right? When, when push comes to shove, right. they'll come back. They won't actually take a pay cut or they won't actually quit and retire. That's true for some, but but some are following through. They are quitting or they are retiring. You spoke to another president of a, a company, Automatic Payroll Systems in uh, Louisiana. He said it kind of stings. It hurt a little bit because he made an investment in his people. They made those plans through the thickest part of the pandemic to make sure that they still had jobs. And then another opportunity, remote work, and they just kind of up and left. So he even feels this thing of that, you know, that there was no loyalty. You know, it kind of continues on to what I'm talking about. You know, there's been this great reshuffling of the work culture through this. This is one of the other layers of the workplace development, right, is that there are a lot of companies, in part because they were able to get those paycheck protection loans from the federal government, but they made a real effort to keep workers employed. A lot of people did lose their jobs, but many folks kept their jobs. And so the company you're talking about is this payroll software company in Shreveport, Louisiana. And 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 you're right, Aaron Johnson, the CEO down there, says, you know, honestly, it's it does. It stings a little bit because you know, we stood by these workers. We we did what we had to do to make sure that nobody lost their job when the economy was at its worst. And then we get to you know the other end and we say, okay, now it's time to come back, not even full-time. He's asking for three days a week in the office. And he told me he lost 30% of the staff last year, largely because folks were taking remote gigs with, yeah. with uh, you know, firms in California, New York, Texas, places that would pay them more, uh, but would allow them to stay in lower cost Louisiana. Callum Borchers, on the clock columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. There have been people on it since 2000 doing research, and it's just, it's big, and it takes a lot of maintenance, and it costs a lot of money, and it's just not going to last forever. Joining us now is Amanda Shupak, contributor to The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this interesting uh, story, the days of the International Space Station could be limited. Uh, It seems that NASA is planning on retiring this research station that we have in uh, low Earth orbit by 2031, possibly. And then, uh, you know, to the point of your article, the race to succeed that, to, you know, what will be the next big uh, space station that we'll have that uh, researchers and scientists can use and perform experiments, all that. Uh, it's very interesting. So, Amanda, uh, help us uh, walk through some of this. What, what's uh, going on with the space station? Why are we getting rid of it? Well, we're getting rid of it because it's old. We're already going on a quarter century of having it up in space. And there have been people on it since 2000 doing research. And it's just, it's big and it takes a lot of maintenance and it costs a lot of money. And it's just not going to last forever. I guess they're just going to slowly lower it back to Earth and let it crash into the water? Sometime, I think, in late 2030, maybe it's in 2031. And that's, by the way, assuming the station even makes it that long. They start to sort of slowly decrease the altitude over the course of a couple of months. And at some point, gravity basically takes over and pulls it in and it ends up crashing into the middle of the Pacific Ocean in this area that's basically like a spacecraft cemetery. So what happens next? We're hoping that the private sector are the ones that are going to be creating these next space stations. And there's already kind of some movement on all of that. And, you know, NASA is going to be 
basically renting space on a lot of these spots and, you know, hopefully other countries and, and stuff will do so also. But tell me about that whole process. You know, what's next? So, yeah, NASA is basically going to be handing over the reins to private industry. Um, and we're seeing that paradigm play out already in private companies doing missions into space. And this is kind of a natural evolution of that, perhaps. But to make sure that NASA always has a place to go, a place to work, they're making sure that companies are invested in creating new space stations. So they're funding some of the design work to go into creating new stations and basically saying, save us a spot so that when you get it up there, we have a place to send our astronauts to do research. Tell me about Axiom Space, uh, Houston's Axiom Space, because they seem like the furthest along in this. They're going to uh, launch a uh, a civilian mission to the International Space Station, and eventually they're going to attach a module to the International Space Station and detach eventually, which would be kind of that first replacement space station kind of thing. So Axiom has the inside track because in 2020, I think it was, they made an agreement with NASA to create the first modules, privately funded, privately manufactured modules that will connect to the International Space Station. And then the longer term plan is that when the space station is retired, those modules will disconnect from the space station and they will be the first free flying commercial space destinations in history. You know, there's a lot of uh, brochures, things going around. I think the Orbital Reef Space Station is kind of another concept. And, you know, a lot of the marketing data for this really makes it seem pretty splashy. You know, they're positioning it as places that people can visit, live and work. So there's a lot of big ideas going on for that. And, and kind of continuing on this front, right, what happens next? So uh, some people say, you know, maybe nothing will happen. Maybe there won't be uh, enough will to kind of continue out in the space uh, arena that way. A lot of the business, initial business stuff, maybe the Axiom space stuff, you know, will be looking back at Earth, offering uh, sellable data, things like deforestation, climate change, land use. Um, so even going into space, we're going to be looking back at our own selves. Depending on who you speak to, there are different views of where things are most likely to go. And I think that there is an appetite for commercial industry in low Earth orbit. So we're probably going to see something. The question is, how far is that going to extend and what are we going to see? So one expert that I spoke to for the article basically was like, why are we even bothering with low Earth orbit? It's boring. Let's go to Mars. <laughs> Let's go to the moon. <laughs> Let's stop circling our own Earth. And he's got a point. But I think that there's something really attractive about low Earth orbit. And it's something we can actually do, whereas we cannot go to Mars yet. And then if we do end up creating some sort of a commercial market space for humans in low Earth orbit, what are we going to be doing with it? And so another expert I spoke to said, well, chances are we're going to be using a lot of that infrastructure that gets created to look backwards onto ourselves and to use that as a vantage point for monitoring what's going on here on Earth. But then further out, Maybe space tourism is really going to happen. Maybe there are adventure tourists out there with deep enough pockets who will want to hitch a ride to space and stay in a Philippe Stark designed hotel room for three days before coming home. That's not out of the question. Amanda Shupak, contributor to The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.